Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. And today we are going to continue our look at the relationship between faith and reason that we started last week by tackling the perennial question and a true example of what I call Catholic kryptonite is the Catholic Church anti-science. But first, October is the month of the rosary, and I have not uh, spoken about that, so I'd like to begin with a few words about this venerable devotion. If you are familiar with my story, you'll know that the Holy Rosary was instrumental in my conversion and has been my constant companion ever since. As a devotee of the Rosary and an armchair medievalist, uh, I've done a certain amount of research into this devotion, and I'd like to share some of the fruits of that with you now. First off, that the Rosary developed over time. Now, it is most associated with St. Dominic in the 13th century, you know the story. He was unsuccessful in his efforts to convert the Albigensian heretics, and he prayed and fasted for three days and was rewarded with a um, vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary who instructed him to, quote, preach my Psalter, unquote. See, the rosary was originally called Mary's Psalter because it was a way for the common folk to unite themselves to the divine office which is built around the Psalter, or the Book of Psalms. Right? Psalter is another word for the Book of Psalms. Hence the 150 Hail Marys to correspond with the 150 Psalms. Now, the big challenge of repeating a prayer, any prayer, 150 times is keeping track. So a way was devised to keep count of the prayers. That folks would put 10 little objects, or little pebbles, or dried peas, or beans, or, or whatever, little pellets into a uh, bowl, and then transfer them for each Ave. They would transfer them into an empty bowl. And then back and forth, you know, until they uh, went through the, uh, the mysteries. Now, in time, those little pellets were strung together into a circle, which was called a chaplet. And the word chaplet originally referred to a garland or a wreath of flowers that's ro- worn on the head like a crown. So saying the rosary then was considered to be like offering a garland of roses or crown of roses to Our Lady. And for your information, to let you know just how common the practice of the rosary was in the Middle Ages, in England, those little pellets came to be known as beads, which was the medieval English word for prayer. So beads are actually called beads because of the rosary. Now, that's one way in which the rosary developed. Another is the Hail Mary itself. If you read the section on prayer from the Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas, you will discover that his treatment of the angelical salutation, a.k.a. the rosary, or the Hail Mary, rather, only includes the words from Scripture. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. But it doesn't include the second half, Hail Mary, Mother of God, etc. So why the addition? Well, firstly, over time, people added the words Mary and Jesus to the angelical salutation, presumably to make it clear who was being spoken of in each case. But the second half wasn't added until probably the 16th century. And I suspect that it was a reaction to the revival of the heresy of Nestorianism, uh, which denied the um, divine maternity of Mary. And that was something that was held by some of the the Protestants. The story has said that um, Mary was the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God. 
And so back in the year 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the church defined the first Marian dogma, that Mary is Theotokos, God-bearer, or the mother of God. Of course, another thing that uh, the Protestant movement condemned or rejected was the communion of saints. And this also, both of these doctrines are represented in the words, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. So you have Mother of God and the communion of saints. So originally, the rosary consisted of 150 angelical salutations, just the first half of the prayer, broken into 15 decades, or groups of 10. At some point, the Our Father was added to each decade. And I suspect that that has to do with the private revelation that was given to St. Bernard of Clairvaux or perhaps St. Gertrude. It's, <clears throat> it's variously ascribed, but it was a popular revelation uh, that our Lord received 5,475 wounds in his most bitter passion. Therefore, anyone who said 15 Our Fathers every day in honor of his passion would, in a year, uh, have said one prayer for each and every single wound that our Lord bore in his passion. And so that would make it natural to add the Our Fathers to the beginning of each of the 15 mysteries of the Rosary. Now, over time, other prayers have been added as well. In The Secret of the Rosary, the book, I read that on tape, um, the audio version for St. Joseph Communications years ago. St. Louis de Montfort, uh, writing in the late 17th, early 18th century, he commends what was at the time the new practice of adding the glory be to the end of each decade. And he says he considers that a good thing because it brings the rosary in closer conformity with the liturgy because you pray the Gloria Patri at the end of each psalm in the divine office. And likewise, the introductory prayers, the Apostles' Creed, the Our Father, the Three Hail Marys, and the Glory Be that we pray before the rosary, that was added later. In some countries, they pray one of the psalms uh, or other prayers as an introduction. Uh, many people today also pray the Fatima prayer after each decade, which only dates back to 1917 and the request of Our Lady of Fatima, who said to pray, O oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of thy mercy. So that's a, an addition to the rosary only from the 20th century. Now, it might interest you to know that in the official handbook of indulgences, to gain the rosary indulgence, you must meditate on the mysteries, but you need only pray the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys. No other prayers are necessary. And customs differ from one country to another. As, speaking of the mysteries, you know, we normally associate the term rosary with the 15 mysteries that are connected to St. Dominic. But there's also the Franciscan Crown Rosary, where you recite seven groups of seven Hail Marys in honor of the seven joys of Mary. Or the Servite Rosary, where you recite seven groups of seven Hail Marys in honor of the sorrows, the seven sorrows of Mary. These are variations of the Rosary. But in any case, the 15 mysteries have remained essentially the same since the 13th century, with a couple of exceptions. You know, we think of the fourth glorious mystery as the Assumption. But into my research, into primary documents from the Middle Ages, and as late as the 1400s, the fourth glorious mystery was the Dormition of Mary. And Dormition means falling asleep. That's the New Testament euphemism for death. Now, that doesn't mean that medieval Catholics didn't believe in the Assumption. Quite the contrary. 
the fifth glorious mystery, which is the coronation of Mary, pardon the pun, assumes the assumption. But why the change? Once again, it could be the mystery changed because uh, Protestants rejected the assumption. And so, you know, they wanted to make it more clear. Also, the Dormition is uh, traditional, but some theologians came to believe that Mary did not die, but was assumed into heaven um, like Enoch and Elias while she was still alive. And since there's no revelation on this particular point, there are still conflicting theological opinions. When Pius XII dogmatized the doctrine of the Assumption in 1950, he just sidestepped the controversy uh, in the official definition by saying that Mary was assumed, quote, at the end of her earthly sojourn, unquote, without mentioning whether she died or not. So that could another be a reason for the change. Um, Another medieval primary source that I have uh, looked at, I discovered that the names Dormition of Mary... Uh, it names the Dormition of Mary as the fourth glorious mystery, but the fifth glorious mystery is the last judgment. So, you know, even the mysteries have developed over time, even of the 15 that we're familiar with and, and admit even today of local variation. Which brings us to the luminous mysteries uh, introduced by St. John Paul II in 2002. For centuries, the rosary, as we th- think of it, had only three sets of mysteries. Joyful, sorrowful, and glorious. 150 Aves for the 150 Psalms. And then in 2002, John Paul II introduced the Luminous Mysteries, which focus on the earthly ministry of Christ. And lots of folks uh, got upset about this edition because they felt that Pope John Paul II was trying to, quote-unquote, change the rosary. And, you know, with people, other people, suddenly looking for, you know, updated rosary materials... Catholic retailers who sell rosary products certainly did nothing to dissuade people from the idea that the rosary had changed and that if you didn't have, you know, your Luminous Mystery stuff, you, uh, you know, it's like when Sony took over the Beatle catalog, they started putting out new compilations of Beatle songs so that collectors would have to buy these records in order for their collection to be complete. Um, Anyway, if you read Rosarium Virginis Mariae, if you read John Paul's document from 2002 you'll find that he does no such thing. You will discover that he identifies the 15 traditional mysteries as the rosary, and then he recommends his luminous mysteries as a quote-unquote suitable addition, a suitable option. In other words, John Paul II introduced a new chaplet, but it's not mandatory, nor did he quote-unquote change the rosary. And I will give a final word to this, to the Handbook of Indulgences, uh, when you pray the rosary, you can gain a plenary indulgence when the rosary is recited in a church or oratory or when it's recited in a family, a religious community or pious association. And then any other um, condition of recitation of the rosary, it carries a partial indulgence. And it defines the rosary as divided into 15 decades of Hail Marys with the Lord's Prayer separating each of these decades. And during the decades, we call devout meditation on the mysteries of our redemption. So you gain the indulgence. All you have to say is the Our Fathers and Hail Marys and meditate on the 15 mysteries. But it admits of local variation, which suggests to me that you still get the indulgence if you do pray the Luminous Mystery. All right, so that's a little insight into the Holy Rosary. We'll be back with our discussion about science and faith right after this.
We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, and I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. For everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. Jesus said in Matthew 26, Stay awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation. According to St. Ephraim, Jesus, who feared nothing, experienced fear and asked to be freed from death, although he knew it was impossible. How much more must we persevere in prayer before temptation assails us, so that we may be freed when the test has come? May God grant that we may withstand temptation and carry out his will in all things. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. Before we move on to our next topic, I wanted to say a final word on the rosary indulgence that it is not necessary to pray all 15, much less 20 mysteries of the rosary to gain the plenary indulgence for a public uh, rosary, which includes the family rosary. You need only pray five decades of the rosary, but it is important to remember that you must join meditation on the mysteries to the recitation of the vocal prayers. Okay, now I mentioned last week that St. Thomas Aquinas defined truth as, quote, conforming the mind to reality, unquote. And as I was preparing for today's program, it occurred to me that the only time that that definition was ever applied to civic life, the result was medieval Christendom, which gave rise to what uh, historians still refer to as the greatest century. The 13th century in Europe saw the greatest amount of authentic social advancement in all of human history. And the modern world is still running on the fumes of that advancement, although the forces of evil have spent the last 700 years from then until now trying to undo it. And that's why this conversation matters. In any case, to recap what we talked about last week in part one of our exploration of the relationship between faith and reason, we discussed objective truth. That objective truth is not determined by popular opinion or even sincerity of belief. 
Secondly, that the faith is not irrational. That faith, by definition, means to believe in something you can't prove, but that does not mean believing in something for no reason. According to Pope St. John Paul II in his encyclical Fides et Ratio, there can be no contradiction between faith and reason. Number three, that belief in God is not irrational. Although the existence of God cannot be proven empirically, this is not due to some deficiency on the part of God, but rather on the limitations of science. Because some things, like love and justice and freedom and God, are beyond scientific proof. And science may not forbid you to believe in that which it is not competent to judge. This is not a matter of physics, but metaphysics. Number four, God can be known by reason, by human reason alone. And we demonstrated some of the classical philosophical proofs for the existence of God, from motion, from order, from causation. As St. Paul said, what can be known about God is evident in the things that he has made. In other words, the generic declaration, I believe in God, is not a statement of faith, but a statement of reason. And finally, we talked about the problem of evil, and why God allows suffering. That God made us in his image as creatures possessing intellect and free will so that we may choose the good. Unfortunately, we can also abuse that freedom and choose evil, but he allows this because he loves us and therefore wants us to be free to love him. We also saw how suffering can be good. It can be good for both the sinner and the just as a cause of conversion for the former and an opportunity for greater merit for the latter. Moving on then, what about those who, for whatever reason, cannot bring themselves to accept the evidence for God, that that will not have faith? Well, for them, there's another argument. It's called Pascal's Wager. The 17th century French Catholic philosopher Blaise Pascal said, essentially, since we can't prove empirically that God exists or that he doesn't exist, You must wager on one or the other. And you have to wager, he says, because you're in the game whether you like it or not, and because of what's at stake. Now, if you place your wager on God, then you can't lose even if God doesn't exist. But if you bet against God and you're wrong, then you lose it all. Uh, Meaning and purpose in this life, eternal happiness in the next, God, heaven, the whole enchilada. As a Catholic priest once told a famous atheist, If I'm wrong and there is no God, I'll never even know I was wrong. But if I'm right, then I'll rejoice for all eternity. On the contrary, he said, if you're right and there's nothing after you die, you'll never know you were right. But if you're wrong, you'll regret it for all eternity. So it's simple. Believers can't lose and atheists can't win. Which brings us to this next bit of a Catholic kryptonite um, which is that evolution disproves God. It is surprising to me how many people chalk up their lack of faith to uh, a belief in evolution. Now, the theory of evolution proposes an explanation of how various species evolved into their present state. But evolution tells us nothing about where they came from in the first place. Pardon me, it tells us nothing regarding the origin of the universe. I recall a discussion with an atheist who couldn't abide the idea of an eternal being bringing everything else into existence. He thought that something with no beginning was absurd. So I posed the question, you know, the the catechism question, where did, you know, who made you? Where did you come from? And he said, my parents. 
And so where did they come from? From their parents. And on and on through all the generations of human beings back to the first pair of human beings, where did they come from? Well, they came from the monkeys. And you go through all the generations of monkeys and where did they come from? They came from the dinosaurs. And you go through all the dinosaurs back to the first pair, where did they come from? They came from the fish. And through all the fish back to the, the primordial soup. And where did the primordial soup come from? He says, well, that came from the Big Bang. And I said, well, what caused the Big Bang? And he says, energy. And I said, well, where did the energy come from? He said, that was always there. And so you go back far enough, you wind up at a first cause, which is itself uncaused, which is eternal and has no beginning. And the point here is not just to rehash the, the argument of God for causation, but to point out that not only is evolution not equipped to answer the question, how did the universe come into being? It cannot even begin to answer the question, why? Why does the universe exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? You see, the Catholic Church doesn't have a, a problem with the theory of evolution, but rather with the unfounded idea that evolution or the Big Bang theory somehow conflict with their belief in God. This is not a conclusion of the physical sciences, but a product of an ideology, a religion, if you prefer, of materialist atheism. It's because it, dis, it, it simply does not follow, logically or scientifically, that if there is evolution, then there is no God. And, and a related piece of nonsense is that, and this is Catholic kryptonite too, is that... Um, the Bible, or science, uh, or evolution, shows that the Bible is an error. Uh, the argument goes like this, that scientists say that the universe um, evolved over millions of years. Ergo, the Bible is in error because it says God created the world in only six days, which is absurd. Now, it is true that some Christians, uh, particularly fundamentalist Christians, teach that each day of creation was, in fact, a literal 24-hour day. But the majority of Christians believe and have always believed that each day of the creation story represents a, an indefinite period of time and that the Bible doesn't indicate how long a period uh, those periods were. St. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 8, Do not ignore this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. St. Augustine argued against the literal six-day interpretation of creation because of what it says in Genesis 1.14. Then God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate day from night and let them mark the seasons, the days, the days and the years. He's talking about the sun and moon because it's the sun that governs the 24-hour day, but God doesn't put the sun into the sky until the fourth day of creation. So Augustine argued that the days of creation could not have been literal 24-hour days, because there was no sun there to mark the passage of the time. So the days of creation might represent a, a long period of time, even millions of years. In any case, we don't know, you know. And the atheists who argue this way, they're as bad as the biblical fundamentalists because they're relying on a literalistic interpretation of Scripture, where we've spoken before that the, the creation account in Genesis is um, an ancient poem but a poem that tells us some literal truths. There is a literal meaning to the creation account in Genesis. But the Bible's not a science book. You know, it's the word of God in the words of men. So the creation account, like I say, it's not science text, it's an ancient poem. 
But as we pointed out before, poetry exists precisely to communicate profound truths, especially where prose falls short. Church teaches that the creation story in Genesis is a way for the inspired author to describe in the creation in understandable human terms, not how to create the universe in six easy steps. Uh, The literal message of Genesis is that creation was ordered and achieved by a loving God for a purpose. And the church recognizes that God deserves the credit for the work of creation, while at the same time respecting scientific discoveries. Rather than proving that God doesn't exist, on the contrary, we see that science supports belief in the existence of God. And according to the Catholic view, science is an important way to get to know God better. You know, too many people think that there's some kind of war between science and religion, that you have to choose one or the other, but that's simply not true. And science isn't something that Catholics can simply abandon to the unbelievers, because it really is one of our best ways to know God. You know, remembering that the theory of evolution is just that, a theory. We do believe that God could have used some form of evolution that allowed nature to develop according to his plan. The important thing to remember is this. Even if there was some form of natural, physical evolution, that cannot account for the spiritual or rational nature of human beings. Of all the visible creatures, only human beings are rational beings capable of communicating with God. And that is because God created men and women in his image. We read in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what are we to make of this, that that we are made in the image of God? It is that we possess intellect and will, which are spiritual attributes. That is how we are in the image of God. But we also have a body. Genesis 2, 7 tells us, And the Lord God formed man's body from the dust of the ground and breathed into it the breath of life. From the dust of the ground implies that there's nothing remarkable about the chemical makeup of our bodies. Therefore, our unique dignity comes from the Spirit of God. The human soul did not evolve, but is created directly by God. And he did not do this for any other physical creature. For over a hundred years, the Darwinists have been looking for the missing link in the fossil record. So far, precisely zero transitional forms have been found. Now, perhaps they should stop looking in the dust of the ground and realize that it is the, the divine breath of life that separates man from the animals. Pope John Paul II, who's one of the patron saints of this program, said, The theory of evolution is only a probability not a scientific certainty. The doctrine of faith, however, invariably affirms that the human spiritual soul is created directly by God. Okay, more on this and uh, the origin of evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and more <laughs> when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after these messages. I'm Matthew Arnold. You're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be right back.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com code VMPR live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been discussing uh, the church and evolution. And I uh, closed the last segment with some words from John Paul II. I'd like to uh, give you the entirety of what he said. Uh, about the theory of evolution. He said it's only a probability and not a scientific certainty. The doctrine of faith, however, invariably affirms that a human spiritual soul is created directly by God. According to the hypothesis mentioned, it is possible that the human body, following the order impressed by the Creator on the energies of life, could have gradually prepared in the forms of antecedent living beings, or could have been gradually prepared in the forms of antecedent living beings. In other words, evolution is hypothetically possible, uh, put in the framework of something used by God. But, he said, the human soul on which man's humanity definitely depends cannot emerge from matter because it is of a spiritual nature. Like I said last week, you can't give what you don't have. Matter does not possess intellect and will. But we do. And so it had to come from someone who also does. So, in summary then, God could have fashioned the universe using an evolutionary process, or not. But however he did it, we must still acknowledge him as creator. 
With this basic premise established, the Church positively encourages diligent, scientific, and scholarly investigation, so that someday we may know for sure what method God used to bring human beings and the universe to their present state. But this much we do know, the answer will not involve any contradiction between faith and reason, between religious truth and scientific truth, because God is the author of all truth. Now, some will say that maybe the church is okay with science now, but that's not the way it used to be. But it is a reality, in reality, it's an old bigotry that's been long debunked that the evil and superstitious Catholic Church was the enemy of reason and that modern science only emerged after a long struggle against this brutal persecution of the Church. That is 100% grade A nonsense. For example, St. Augustine argued that our ability to reason and to engage in empirical investigation is a gift from our Creator. St. Thomas Aquinas was a great advocate of Aristotelian logic, and he held that there was only one truth, just as we do today. And he taught that this one truth could be approached by two paths, both faith and reason, religion and science, precisely because there's only one truth. The modern physical sciences emerged precisely in the context of the Catholic Christian worldview, a view that believes in intelligent design and therefore takes for granted the intelligibility of the universe and that there are certain immutable physical laws. That is what gave birth to the scientific method. Now, before we leave the theory of evolution, you might be surprised to learn that it existed before Darwin, that over a period of 20 years, from 1802 to 1822, the French botanist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck developed the first cohesive theory of evolution, including a theory of inheritance of acquired characteristics, right, genetics, the transmutation of species, one thing evolving into another, and a genealogical tree. He's also the first scientist to use the term biology in the modern sense. Now, Lamarck died in the year 1829. That's 30 years before Darwin published On the Origin of Species. And i also point out that Lamarck was a Catholic and, in fact, an ordained deacon. And he saw no contradiction between creation and the theory of evolution or between science and Catholicism. Similarly, the Big Bang Theory was proposed by Dr. Georges Lamotte, an astronomer and a professor of physics, and a Catholic priest. Monsignor Lamotte was a, a pioneer in applying Einstein's theory of relativity to cosmology. All the way back in 1931, he was the first scientist to propose that the expansion of the universe was actually accelerating, which was later proven only 60 years later, in the 1990s, through the use of the Hubble Space Telescope, which technology obviously was not available to him. At a meeting of the British Association on the Relation Between the Physical Universe and Spirituality, Physical Universe and Spirituality, uh, Lamott proposed that the universe expanded from an initial point, which he called the primeval atom. Lamott described his theory as, quote, the cosmic egg exploding at the moment of the creation, unquote. It became better known later as the Big Bang Theory which is a term coined by uh, Fred Hoyle. Monsignor Lamott so no, saw no contradiction between creation and science because, as a Catholic priest, 
he knew who made the Big Bang go bang. In January 1933, Monsignor Lamont and Albert Einstein traveled together here to Southern California. Well, to California. I don't know if Southern California or not. But they did a series of seminars propounding their theories. Lamont talking about his uh, cosmic egg and <laughs> Einstein uh, about the theory of relativity. And um, after Lamont detailed his Big Bang theory, Einstein reportedly led a standing ovation and said that it was the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation uh, to which I have ever listened. So obviously Einstein also knew that somebody made the Big Bang go bang. So not only did, did medieval Catholics give birth to the scientific method, but Catholics have always been at the forefront of scientific research. Gregor Mendel, who was the father of genetics, was a Catholic monk. Louis Pasteur, there's a great story um, about it. It's a uh, French guy, a couple of Frenchmen on a train, young man and an old man. And the old man reaches into his pocket and takes out his rosary beads, starts saying the rosary, and the young man scoffs at him and says, oh, you poor fellow, don't you know that, uh, that that's all passe now, that, uh, that science has disproven the faith? And he says, well, that's very interesting. Can you tell me more? He says, well, I have some literature that I could send you. Do you have an address? And the old man gave him his card, and you, I can imagine the look on his face when he read uh, Louis Pasteur, <laughs> that the old man with the rosary was the famous microbiologist um, you know, and, and a devout Catholic and that he didn't see a conflict there. Uh, going back to the Middle Ages, we have Copernicus, who was the uh, first proponent of the heliocentric theory, long before Galileo. And he was also a Catholic priest. Now, none of these men had any difficulty reconciling their Catholic faith with their groundbreaking scientific research. From heliocentrism uh, all the way to the Big Bang Theory. And yet, the idea, this, this Catholic kryptonite, this nonsensical myth that the church was the enemy of science still persists today. And there's a reason why. It is the willful distortion primarily of two historic episodes, the voyage of Columbus and the trial of Galileo. Now, the Columbus myth is based on the ridiculous notion that the medieval church believed that the earth was flat. And defenders of this calumny say that Christopher Columbus made his great voyage in order to prove that the world was round. It was, you know, it's Columbus against the church, science against religion. And, of course, the, his voyage had the effect of illuminating medieval minds, which had been darkened by centuries of Catholic superstition. And some go as far as to accusing the church of condemning belief in the sphericity of the earth as a heresy. You'll find this in uh, the book, The Unity of Western Civilization by uh, F.S. Martin. It says, I quote, the maps of Ptolemy were forgotten in the West for a thousand years, Ptolemy, the, uh, you know, the ancient uh, cartographer. The maps of Ptolemy were forgotten in the West for a thousand years and replaced by imaginary constructions based on the supposed teachings of Holy Writ. The sphericity of the earth was, in fact, formally denied by the church. And the mind of Western man, so far as it moved in this matter at all, moved back to the old, confused notion of a modulated flatland, unquote. This is a standard text. 
This is a text that you will see quoted in encyclopedias still. And it is unadulterated grade A nonsense. It's the special kind of nonsense for which there is a special word. A word that you will find under the letter B in the dictionary right between bulwark and bullfinch. That kind of nonsense. The church never officially taught the flat earth error, much less condemned belief in a round earth as a heresy. Now, do you know where this lie, the lie that the church taught the flat earth, do you know where that comes from? A fictional account of the life of Christopher Columbus by Mr. Washington Irving, better known for writing the American classics Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, a.k.a. The Headless Horseman. And those two efforts contained every bit as much factual data as his book on Columbus. So how did Irving's bigoted nonsense wind up in textbooks? Because secular authors, intent on depicting the church as the enemy of science, purposely misrepresented his blatant anti-Catholic fiction as a fact. And they did it in in order to stifle opposition to materialist atheism, which they continue to promote as the supposedly logical consequence of the theory of evolution. But nothing could be more ridiculous. The truth is, Catholic thinkers believed in a round earth from the very beginning of the Christian era. There's no divine revelation regarding the shape of the earth. So the early church fathers largely followed the thought of St. Augustine, who put forth the evidence of the Greek philosophers, who also believed in the sphericity of the earth, which only demonstrates the church's constant commitment that faith is not opposed to reason. Even St. Paul, as I mentioned before, he was a Hellenistic Jew. He was well-versed in the philosophy of the Greeks. And so when he wrote to the pagan Romans, he said, what can be known about God is evident. Because God has made it evident ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. Science answers that question. Never did medieval man accept the flat earth error. And once again, there's ample documentation to demonstrate this, but more than just documentary evidence. And we'll talk about what that is when we come back with our final segment here on No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along with us. We're going to be back with lots more right after these messages. So stay with us. Hands on apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, where we go wall to wall with defending, explaining, sharing the faith. Master apologist Carlo Broussard. Carlo, welcome to Hands on Apologetics. Hey, Gary, it's great to be back in the dojo, my friend. Master apologist Ken Hensley, welcome to Hands on Apologetics. Good to see you again, Gary. Good to be with you. Michael Barber, welcome. You have entered into the Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. Gary, thanks for having me on. We are chatting with Master Apologist Carl Keating. Gary, it's great to be back with you. Coming into the dojo is our good friend Steve Ray. Thank you, Gary. Good to be here. Tim Staples, welcome to Hands On Apologetics. Hey, it's great to be with you, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Join many others in Gary Machuda's Apologetics Dojo. We have some of the best Catholic apologists in the nation. 
Streaming live weekdays from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific. Hands-on apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before we took our break, I said that there was documentary evidence, ample documentary evidence, for the medieval Catholic belief in the sphericity of the earth, but that there was something more than documentary evidence. And that is um, an ornament that was widely used by medieval monarchs called an orb. It was customary for a monarch to be depicted and at state occasions to hold in one hand a scepter and in the other hand an orb. Now, this scepter was a, uh, a symbol of his authority, his temporal authority to rule um, you know, in his kingdom. And the orb was a symbol of from whence that authority proceeds. Now, an orb is a ball, essentially, a, a, a globe. And the royal orbs would typically tend to be made of gold and you know, bedecked with jewels. And this uh, globe was surmounted by a cross. Now, the cross was to represent Christ and his dominion over the whole earth. And the earth was signified by a globe. Okay, not by, not by a, a, a mortar or a dish, but by a sphere. And that's because Catholics believed that the world was round, medieval ones. So back to Columbus, he's trying to get financial backing for his uh, voyage of exploration. He needs ships and sailors, and that costs money. And so he's going around to different uh, courts and uh, making his appeal. And it's interesting that this is right at the end of the medieval period. In fact, 1492 is often given as the year that uh, the, the medieval period ended and the Renaissance began. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So it's interesting that some of the objections that were raised against his voyage were scientific ones. And none of them involved questioning the roundness of the earth. Even this the rather odd objection that said, well, if you sail down the curve of the earth, how are you going to sail back up? As silly as that sounds today, 
it takes for granted that the Earth is round. So I reiterate, this was a scientific argument and not a religious one. Now, more convincingly, some opponents cited the traditional measurements of the globe according to, uh, to Ptolemy, a, a, the great ancient cartographer. Again, supposedly forgotten for a thousand years in the West. But they argued that the circumference of the Earth, according to his calculations, was far too great and the distance uh, uh, too far to allow a successful Western passage. In other words, they thought you're going to run out of food and water long before you, you manage to sail all the way around the world to reach the West Indies. But in point of fact... Throughout the thousand years of the medieval period, virtually all educated people, including church scholars, held the opinion that the world was round. And that is no nonsense. Now, Galileo. (laughs) Galileo is a whole show in himself. I actually did a lot of research into the Galileo case, and I had to sort through a lot of conflicting accounts and a lot of nonsense and, and look for primary sources or at least good secondary ones that quoted primary sources, to find out the actual facts of the case. And it's more than we can cover in the next couple of minutes. Although I did, um, I did talk about it in some detail in the uh, talk that I did on Dan Brown's book, Angels and Demons, because he resurrects a lot of the old canards about the Galileo case, that he was this martyr for science against the cruel and superstitious Catholic Church that he was tortured and imprisoned in a dungeon, you know, by the, uh, by the Inquisition and was in danger for his life the whole time. And, or even, I, they, they may even have made the uh, assertion that he was executed. But none of which is true, of course. Um, but I, I went into some detail on that. Um, I remember the details of the Galileo case very well. Dan Brown's nonsense, not so much, because I <laughs> tend to, to uh, put that stuff out of my head. But, you know, that's something that you could uh, look at. And it may be... If you're interested, let me know, uh, you know, in the comments on YouTube or, or send an email to vmpr.org and, and, and let me know if you're interested, uh, Facebook, comment on, you know, wherever we are. And if you're interested, I might be able to devote an entire show to the Galileo case because it would probably take a whole show. But um, suffice it to say, he was never tortured. He was never thrown in a dungeon. He was never in danger of his life. He was not condemned or tried for heresy, by the way. On the contrary, he was found guilty in a court of law for teaching an unproven theory as though it were an established fact, which he maintained that he had not done. He said, no, 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 I've, I never said, you know, that, that, that uh, heliocentrism is, is an established fact. I, I'm just teaching a theory. Now the court uh, concluded otherwise. And so he did wind up in house arrest and did some of his best work during that time. But the, the, but the idea that you should not teach a scientific theory as though it were an established fact and proceed from that, you know, in a well-ordered society, that was considered a crime. You know, it's a fraud. And, you know, I think it's something that we should re-examine in our own society. But uh, at the beginning of this talk, uh, I, last week, we started by, by mentioning back in March of uh, 2012, March 24th, an estimated 2,000, or not 2,000, 20,000 atheists and agnostics from all around the country gathered at the uh, Washington Mall in Washington, D.C. to participate in the self-proclaimed Reason Rally. 
there the unbelieving throng sat at the feet of the great prophet of reason, Richard Dawkins, uh, to learn how to speak to us poor, benighted uh, religious believers. And what great wisdom did he impart? Well, this well-known atheist author and activist called for unbelievers to mock people of faith. He said the claims of religion need to be challenged and ridiculed with contempt. He offered this specific suggestion. He said, if, for example, they say they're Catholic, do you really believe that when a priest blesses a wafer, it turns into the body of Christ? Are you seriously telling me you believe that? Are you seriously saying wine turns into blood? And, you know, what if the Catholic should have the fortitude to answer, yes, I do believe in that? His advice, this, this sage advice that he tendered to the cheering crowd was, mock them, ridicule them in public. Now, you notice that <clears throat> Dawkins just isn't just mocking religious beliefs. He's mocking religious believers. And he calls for others to do the same. Because apparently the cause of reason is so crucial that people who promote reason cannot be expected to offer any kind of rational argument in favor of it much less engaged in some outdated conventions like common courtesy. Although you would expect at something like a reason rally, he'd offer a, you know, reason. Now, I should point out that ridicule and name-calling are well known to be the last resort of a man without a rational argument. And that's something that we're dealing with quite a bit these days, is people that are proceeding from irrational standpoints. And at this point, who even claim that rationality is itself a, a kind of racism or, or an example of, of patriarchy that's been keeping people down for a thousand years. The principle of non-contradiction and cause and effect, all, that's, all of that stuff is white privilege. <laughs> you know? It is a crazy time. But the, the point is, of course, that Catholics can answer the objections of, of our atheist friends, which is why they have to resort to ridicule in the first place. Because they don't have a good argument. You know? But what happens? What happens when ridicule is no longer sufficient? What if ridicule isn't enough to silence the defender of the Catholic faith? And what if the Catholic's defense of his faith actually makes sense? What if it exposes the inadequacy of the atheist slash agnostic argument. Well then, uh, when ridicule fails, the unbeliever falls back on the tactic of recrimination and accuses the Catholic of being mean and uncharitable. <clears throat> Again, it may seem strange uh, to a rational human being that somebody who would openly ridicule a Catholic would expect charity in return. <laughs> but, but that's what they're asking for. And in a way, in a way that they are sadly unable to appreciate, the enemies of the faith do have a point. Good Catholics must practice charity, and we shouldn't expect charity from unbelievers in return, because charity, love, uh, love of the other, love is an act of the will. Well, see, that's, that's, a, that's a theological virtue, and unbelievers don't possess theological virtues. But a good Catholic also knows that true charity 
is expressed in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And those spiritual works include to counsel the doubtful, to instruct the ignorant, and to admonish the sinner. Now, that is hardly what unbelievers are asking for (laughs) when they they demand charity from Catholics. What they want is for us to allow their errors to go uncorrected, their lies and their calumnies to go unanswered. But this we may not do. Listen now. We may not if we take the faith seriously. Because Jesus said, Jesus, in uh, rather St. Paul said in 1 Timothy, that Jesus will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So to leave the believer's doubts uncounseled, his errors uncorrected, his manifest sins unchallenged, that, that would be uncatholic, unchristian, and above all, uncharitable. We have a duty to defend the truth, and that's no nonsense. Okay, well, that's another one in the bag. So great to have had you along with us this time and looking forward to next time as well. Also, coming up on the 7th of November, we're going to have one of our day-long virtual conferences from starting at 9 in the morning on Saturday, the 7th of November. I will be here with Terry Barber live, and we are going to be hosting a showing of my What Every Catholic Needs to Know series. So it's What Every Catholic Needs to Know About the Bible, What Every Catholic Needs to Know About Mary, What Every Catholic Needs to Know About the Pope, and What Every Catholic Needs to Know About Hell. Four big topics. And on these programs that I produced for St. Joseph uh, some years ago, you will see Scott Hahn, Tim Staples, Steve Ray, uh, Michael Barber, Dr. Grant Petrie, Father Bill Casey, Kimberly Hahn, and uh, Jesse Romero, and lots more. Defending the faith and giving you reasons for faith and telling you what every Catholic needs to know about these important topics. Now, you can go to vmpr.org and pre-register if you like. Uh, and if you want to, the, the conference is free. Uh, you can watch the live event free on YouTube on the 7th of November. But if you want access, you can uh, uh, pay a fee there and you'll be able to look at it whenever you like. All right. Until next time, God bless you. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.